This is a free download from Delancey Elam Church. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30am in the Delancey Elam Church building at the Banks and Samson in the Channel Islands of Guernsey. To contact us or find out more information about us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk Which is just fantastic because the song we've just sung and the words we've just received today it's almost like someone knows what they're doing. <laughs> um, if we look today around the world at Christianity, there are about roughly 30,000 different denominations within Christianity, Pentecostalism just being one of them. And within Christianity, there's so much diversity. That's what's so fantastic about our faith, that you can hold to many different kind of ideas about certain things there's differences differences in doctrine differences in the way we do things in the way we do our sunday services different different ideas about creation or about the bible whether it's symbolic literal there's so many differences worldwide amongst the different denominations but there is one thing at the center of all those denominations. There's one thing that is fundamental, that is central, that is the key idea to our faith. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what denomination you go into, okay, we might have our differences, we might do things differently, but we hold to the most important thing, the most important thing being Jesus. We only really need to get that one thing right. Everything else is secondary in a way. Because it says, doesn't it, in the Bible, that anyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Salvation is found through Christ alone. It's Jesus. It's all about him. No other belief, no other good deed, no other doctrine. It's not centred around anything else, but it's centred around Jesus. He's the one thing holds us together in our Christian faith. And today I want to speak about Jesus. I didn't think I could go too far wrong with speaking about Jesus. When Steph said to me, what's your sermon about today? I went, Jesus? It's just about Jesus. Because it's the main important thing. We're always told, aren't we, there's that that age-old joke in Sunday school, the answer's always Jesus. Whatever, just say Jesus, you'll be okay. And I was looking at the gospel headings as I was preparing for the sermon um, about what Jesus does. And I just wonder if you could flip that um, PowerPoint slide up for me. Now, Jesus does loads and loads of things. But if you just look at the headings alone in the chapters, you know when it says at the heading of a chapter, feeding the 5,000, whatever. I just took those and and that was just a real quick summary. Jesus washes and comforts, heals, predicts, promises, feeds talks, teaches, changes, clears, prays, appears, reinstates, sends, calms, walks, drives out, calls, cleanses, and sends us out. Jesus did all those things and more. And today, Jesus still is doing all those things for us. For whatever we face, whatever we're going through, whatever our situation may be, Jesus is still all those things today. For us, you know, if we're fearful, if we're worried, Jesus still comes and calms. If we're lacking in something, Jesus still feeds, He still provides for us. If we feel a failure, if we feel guilty, He still reinstates, He still cleanses us 
we feel inadequate, that we feel like God can't use us, he still calls us. Maybe we're waiting for an answer, but his promises are still true. He's still faithful. We might be hurt, upset, downhearted, but Jesus still comforts. He still appears to us in our situation. We might feel alone, but Jesus can still walk in to the darkest places. We may be sick, but Jesus still heals. Overwhelmed, but Jesus still changes things. We might be restless, but Jesus still sends us. And sometimes I'm guilty in my walk with God of not really living in the fullness of Christ, of really recognizing what I have in Jesus and the truth that I have in Jesus. Jesus is central and he is the only one we need for our situations and what we face. He is the answer. He is the one who will put things right. And I wonder today, sometimes we may, may doubt God sometimes. Maybe in the sense that we don't feel like we qualify for Jesus' unconditional love. We don't feel like we're good enough or we don't feel like we've got our lives sorted enough. And I want to encourage us today to look again at Jesus and all that Jesus is and what he's done for us. I don't know whether you'll know this, some of it, it might have passed some of you by, but Friday was Children in Need Day, okay? And the theme for Children in Need was fancy dress as your, your childhood superhero. Did anyone dress up as their childhood hero? No. Okay, right, well, at school we had um, a dress-up day, which was dress as your childhood hero. So I, ha- I went through a number of options that I could dress up as. I started with my ultimate hero, who was Jason Donovan, but I felt that I couldn't dress up as Jason because, well, I'm a little bit older than the kids. I don't think they would know who he was, so I thought Jason Donovan's probably out of it. Then I thought, okay, who's who's my other heroes? I did think of Gerald Durrell because I used to be part of the um, Dodo Club for the uh, Jersey Sioux, which is quite apt, I think, in name, some might say. Um, So I used to be part of that, but uh, then I thought, well, again, the students might not know him, and he's a bit hard to dress up as. So I thought, oh, well, my ultimate hero would, of course, be Jesus. Ever since I was young, Jesus was my role model. Jesus was the one I looked up to. So I thought, yes, I'd I'd go as Jesus. Um, Because Jesus has been my everything, right from when I was young. And sometimes the the problem with that is that you become so familiar with Jesus, I suppose, and and you're so used to things that sometimes we forget perhaps the power and the impact that the truth of the cross has for us in our everyday lives. So I want us to look at Jesus. Just to let you know, I didn't actually dress up as Jesus in the end because... I didn't have a white sheet or a beard or a wig. I only had sandals. So I decided instead to go as a different hero, which was Maria from The Sound of Music, because I just happened to have a nun's outfit. So that was okay. Anyway, so today I want us to look again at Jesus, and I want us to look into the garden, because this picture in the Bible of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is so, so significant. 
so wonderful, such an amazing picture of who Christ is and what he's done. The Garden of Gethsemane, it's not just an interlude. It's not just a little stopgap between Jesus' ministry and going to the cross, the crucifixion. It may well be the most penetrating look that we've got of Jesus' own inner life from any other place in the Bible. It explains why and how he died and how we should respond more than any other place in the gospel, even the crucifixion itself. So I want us to take a little look at Matthew, Mark and Luke's accounts. Matthew chapter 26, if you have your Bibles and you can turn to that. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 to 38. We'll look at this bit first. It says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This point, Jesus' grief and sorrow are enormous. They're far beyond what we could expect at such a moment. And Jesus' words are recalled here in the Gospel account when it says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. We have this picture of this internal, this mental agony that's so unbearable to Jesus, so unbearable that he feels like the pain alone could kill him there and then. It's that agonizing. And we see Jesus throughout the gospel accounts um, weeping at times or sighing at times. We see that. We read that. But this burden here, that surpasses everything that Jesus has been through. And as Jesus walks towards the garden, Matthew writes, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The change happens as he approaches towards the garden. This feeling comes over him. It descends upon him like he's never experienced before. In Mark's Gospel account, um, the Greek word used there, it kind of means astounded. We can't get the full picture, really, when we read it in English. But the Greek word means to be moved to an intense emotional state because of something causing great surprise or perplexity. So in some versions that we have, it says deeply distressed, but deeply distressed just does not cut it. Deeply distressed is an understatement of what Jesus is feeling at this point. Maybe it's been put there because we can't get our heads around the divine being feeling infinitely perplexed by something like if he's God, he should know. But deeply distressed doesn't cut it. He's dumbfounded. He's astonished. He's on his way to pray and darkness and horror come down upon him beyond anything he could have anticipated. He couldn't have anticipated this feeling. Such was the agony that he was going through. And if we think about the gospel writers and when they were writing this account of Jesus, then they would have known that there's followers of God who have given up their lives for their faith and their belief. There were 
martyrs of the faith who had, who had gone to their deaths in remarkable serenity, that had gone to their deaths in great poise and praising God. You know, Stephen's account says his face was like the face of an angel. It was radiant. And as they stoned Stephen, he was praying for, for their forgiveness. Ignatius, Cervantioc, Polycarp, these great people who had been martyred, they were both tortured, but they kept their poise. It was said of the Christians that if you threw the Christians to the lions, they'd be singing. Such was their faith and belief in God. But Jesus' situation is very different. Jesus wasn't going with great serenity, with great poise. His face wasn't radiant like these martyrs, which just goes to show how true this must be, because if it wasn't, the gospel writers would not have written it this way. But the reason Jesus is so different is because Jesus is facing a death in a way that none of his followers would ever face or ever will face in the future. It was a unique situation that Jesus was in. Jesus was in agony. He had the horror of darkness over him. Why wasn't he like the other followers? Why wasn't he radiant and poised and and serene in that way? Well, let's have a little look at Matthew 39. It says this. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same Words again. You see, the difference with Jesus' death and situation was the cup. The cup was the difference. And the cup in ancient times was like, like the electric chair, similar to something like that. If you think about the first father of philosophy, the great Socrates, years before Jesus... He was poisoned by the cup. He had to drink the cup of hemlock. He was poisoned for his ideas. So the cup didn't represent just any death. The cup was highly significant. It was the judicial death. It means way more than just an execution for Jesus. When you look at the cup in the Bible, it refers to God's own judicial wrath on injustice and on evil doing. You look back in Ezekiel 23, it says, you will drink the cup of ruin and desolation. In Isaiah 51, it says, those who drink the cup of his wrath, the bowl of staggering. Jesus didn't die gracefully like those who were martyrs because none of them were facing the cup. When Jesus himself speaks of the cup, it shows he knows that he's facing not just physical torture and death, But he is about to experience the full divine wrath on the evil and sin of all humanity. The judicial wrath of God is about to come down on him rather than upon us. And the outpouring of that wrath 
comes in full force on the cross the next day. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a torture of divine absence. It's a torture of not being in God's presence. It's a torture of having God remove himself. That was what Jesus was facing. That's why he was in so much agony. You know, sometimes you hear people say, don't you, how can God exist? How can God be so loving um, if he exists? Because he punishes us. He sends people to hell. If we don't believe in him, if we don't do the right thing, he punishes us. But that's, that's, that's not it. That's not what happens. It's, it's not God's punishment. It's absence of God in people's lives. You see, if people choose to say no to God, if people reject God, or if we sin, which is in essence when we sin saying, I don't want God, that's what sin is, isn't it? It's moving God out of it. So if we say that, if we say, God, actually, I don't want you in my life, it's not punishment. It says God, God goes, okay, okay, I, I will remove myself from you, for you've not chosen me. Or sin is the same. Why do we feel so wretched when we sin? Why do we feel so bad when we do things wrong? Because we're making that barrier between us and God. Because there's an absence there. And that's what it is. It's God saying, I don't want you not to choose me. But you have chosen to go on your own. So I will leave you. And that is the torture. That is the punishment, I guess, if we want to call it that. But it's not God punishing us, it's just God removing his presence. And there's no greater awful thing than not having God's presence, not having God in, in, in your life or near you. Imagine this for Jesus. The first time in all eternity, he's lost the connection with the Father. Bill Lane states this, that dreadful sorrow and anxiety, out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup brings... It's not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. Rather, it is the horror of one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of the alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin, which Jesus assumes. Jesus is in agony to the point where his sweat is like blood the agony is being cut off from the father and you hear today many different ideas of what hell is don't you big controversy in christianity about what hell is but whatever it is physical not physical whatever the thing is the torment is alienation from god that's the torment separation from god's presence and jesus is beginning to experience that and knows that's what's ahead Jesus, in his passive obedience, takes the penalty we deserve for sin. He dies the death we should have died. And we know that. But it's so much more than this. Because in his active obedience, he lived the life that we and you should have lived. Jesus' death frees us from sin. We're pardoned. We're forgiven. We should have had that death, but we don't because Jesus went and did it. But if we just stop there at the cross, if we just stop at we're forgiven, we're pardoned, then when we sin, which we do, well, I do, when we mess up, when we do things wrong, 
we may feel that we lose God's favor. We may feel that we lose God's acceptance of us. We're assured of the forgiveness of God, but we're not assured maybe of that unconditional love if we just stop at the cross being something that is just about forgiveness. Yes, he died the death that we should have had, but Jesus also lived the life that we should have lived. He lived in total obedience to God. He sacrificed his life. He was perfect in every way. And Jesus fulfills that law as our substitute. And that's what Jesus said when he says, I've come to fulfill the law that we will never be able to fulfill. And this obedience that Jesus demonstrates requires the highest honor, the highest reward. It gets the highest prize for it is perfect, sacrificial obedience. So not only does Jesus go and get the penalty that we deserved, but we get the reward that he deserved. For Jesus says, thy will be done. And Jesus is the first and last person in history to be told that obedience would bring a curse. Because in effect, this is what God the Father is saying. If you obey me, if you're faithful to me, I'm going to forsake you. I'm going to cast you off. I'm going to send your soul to hell. And Jesus obeys. And I'll be the only place we see that when such obedience brings that curse from God the Father. You see, if Jesus had died only the death, we should have died. Then if we wanted to be sure that God not only forgave us, but loved us and approved us and accepted us, we'd feel it was all about the way that we live our morally good life. Forgiven, yes, but how God sees me and how God sees you would depend on how we live and what we do. But this isn't what's happening. You see, Jesus lived the life we should have lived, and he was also a substitute for us. So we get the benefits of his obedience. His righteousness is credited to us. That is pretty amazing stuff, that he went and died the death we should be having, and we get the reward that he should have. Jesus isn't just a model Jesus isn't just a good example for us to look at and and base our lives on and try to follow. If that was the case, if Jesus was just a good example, then we would probably walk around feeling pretty fed up with ourselves, pretty depressed because we'd never be good enough. We just couldn't ever match that. No, Jesus is our substitute. And this morning, well, when I was preparing for this, Although we know this stuff sometimes, it blew me away when I just read it again to think that, yeah, not only am I forgiven in Christ, but I also have his righteousness given to me. He's my substitute. So we are not just forgiven, but we are absolutely beautiful to God. We are righteous in Christ. If we look at who we are in ourselves, that's when the problem starts. That's when we 
want approval from other people. That's when we get disappointed. That's when we feel like failures. That's when all the stuff happens, when we look at who we are in ourselves. But if we look at who we are in Jesus Christ, we get a different picture. And I just want to encourage us again this morning just to look at that love that was displayed for you, for me, in that garden of Gethsemane. You know, Jesus is there. And in that garden, he wouldn't let you go. In that garden, he he knew us. He had us in mind. He wouldn't let us go. When you feel not good enough, when you feel like you've upset him, can I encourage you to look at this garden and this account? Because everything was thrown at Jesus Absolute, total abandonment of the Father was thrown on Jesus for you, for me. And if the cup didn't make him give up, then nothing else will. If the cup didn't make Jesus turn away and give up on us, nothing will. Nothing. Whatever we feel like. It says in Romans 8, doesn't it, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from Jesus' love. In Hebrews, in chapter 13, it says, I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Ever. So when Angie was sharing this morning about the faithfulness of God, yet that's it. He's faithful. Even when we're not faithful, he can't deny himself. He is faithful to us because he won't leave us. And even in those moments when we're going through things, whatever it is that we're going through, when we might doubt where God's presence is or we might not feel God's presence, we might not feel Jesus' acceptance or love or approval. We might not feel it, but it's there because the Bible is true and the promises are true and when you look at the garden of gethsemane what you see is the love that you've always wanted all your life a love that won't give up on us a love that won't let us down it's not friendship love it's not romantic love it's not married love it's just way beyond that way beyond that and we can look at him Dying in the darkness for us. The actual abandonment of the Father. That was the cup. If you're in any doubt today about where Jesus is or what Jesus can do for you, look at the garden. That list that I had on before. Jesus still does all those things. Jesus is still the center of our faith. Jesus is still the one that will walk with us through whatever valley, through whatever we're facing. He is the one that takes hold of our hand and guides us through. He not only died the death we should have had, he lived the life that we should be living. And he is our substitute. And if the cup didn't make him give up on you, nothing else will. Nothing else will make him give you up on you. Whatever you've done, whatever you do, wherever you are, whatever you're in, he won't give up on you. I'm going to invite the worship band to come back.
And as we sing, I want us to just think about that. Think about that picture in the garden. So, such a significant account of Jesus. And it gives us such a perfect, wonderful picture of who he is and why he went through what he went through. It wasn't just that he was worried about, fearful about losing his life and the torture that was to come. It wasn't that. It was that he was being abandoned by the Father so that we don't have to be, so that we'll never be left on our own, that we have assurance of eternal life. And he is our substitute. We're forgiven. Yes, we're forgiven. But we're also unconditionally loved and accepted. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this free download from Delance Healing Church. For more downloads or to contact us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk. 